You are listening to audio from the church at Junius Heights. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website, thechurchatjuniusheights.org. I was talking with the worship team before we got started this morning at our 10 o'clock prep time, and this, getting to gather in Jesus' name, this, getting to open the scriptures to lean in together with brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God that have our anchor and our hope in heaven, that we get to do this, this is a wild gift. Uh, this is, the, the church as a whole kind of in the West has sort of bent towards this consumeristic angle on church where if it's not like I want it, then it's not gonna be good enough. But, but we forget a lot of times in the West that this is a wild gift and at some point, Someday we may not get to do this the same way, the way that the, the world is changing. And so for us to gather in Jesus' name around the scriptures and worship is, uh, man, we should, we should lean in every Sunday going, wow, this is a gift for us to get re-energized and refocused and sent back out. So I'm really glad that you guys are here. If you have missed a few weeks, we've been talking about it, what it is to be a church on mission. The last three weeks we've been talking about the mission of the church that God has put us on, the purpose, how, we, how we're moving forward. The last three weeks have been zeroed in on church on mission, the great commission, the great commandment, and that we would love one another as last week so that the world would know that the Father has sent the Son. Last week, love one another so that when people see us, it would tell the story that God has already sent his son, which is wild in itself. But no matter what passage of scripture we're in, the word of God is the sword of the spirit, which pushes the darkness back. It's our weapon to push the darkness back in our own lives and push the darkness back in the world around us. And so no matter if we're talking about the church on mission or something else, it doesn't matter. The scriptures are the same. And so for us to lean in, we're going to jump back into the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 20 and 21. And if you've been here for the last year of our church, we've been in the book of Luke almost the whole time. We did Christmas from the book of Luke and we did Jesus' birth. We did Easter from the book of Luke. And so these last last two chapters from the book of Luke will finish our effort in teaching of the whole of scripture. We're going to go through a full book at a time. We may jump off track here and there, but we're going to try to finish the text and be faithful to it. And so we're finishing the book of Luke before we jump into the next sermon series in the next three weeks. In this passage, Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry where Jesus is on his way to the cross and his public ministry has been packed, but these last few days are full. I, I keep every letter my grandmother sends me, and my grandmother's 96 as of two days ago, and every letter she sends me, it seems like there's important words in there because she's only got a, a certain amount of time left on this side of heaven, and we get that perspective when we're looking at Jesus in his words from his time in Jerusalem after the triumphal entry. He is a man that has a few words left. And so we're gonna look at the, the last words of the dying king of the universe. How expectant should the posture of our hearts be with that in mind? That Jesus is going to the cross and we get to look at what he has said before he gets executed. So we're going to lean in. I'd like for you, in honor of reading God's word, to stand one more time and turn to the book of Luke chapter 20. With that kind of expectation, that kind of interest in what God has to say, Luke chapter 20, and we'll start at the very end of Luke chapter 20 and into 21, and I'm going to read it. Just follow along, and your scriptures are on the screen. 
45, in, in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes who walk around and they like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and in the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses for a pretense they make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Verse one of 21, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put two small copper coins in and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them for they all contributed out of their abundance but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Father, thank you for your word. Would we lean in and receive what you have for us in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So let the movie of your mind roll a little bit as you read the text. Jesus created for us this really profound contrast. Jesus' vantage point that he's invited us into has provided us a window into a very profound contrast. We see unrighteous and righteous. We see the proud and the humble. We see lovers of self and lovers of God, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, divorced and widowed, greedy and generous, hopeless and hopeful, self-reliant and trusting. We see two very wide angles of the spectrum of how our hearts can be postured towards God. Jesus is inviting us in to take a deeper look at what those postures mean. And he starts out strong. He says, beware the scribes. You see it in Matthew and Mark. Beware the scribes and the Pharisees. Beware, beware, beware. He starts out really strong. And for us to understand why Jesus starts so strong about calling out a group of people and telling his disciples, watch out for these people, we need to know what is happening before that. Context is key. And it would do us really good to go back and read through all of chapter 20. I'm going to ask you in the week uh, to come to read chapter 20 and read chapter 21, because we're going to stop at the Lord's Supper, but we're going to move into the next three weeks of chapter 20. And so I'm going to give you a little context of the chapter 20. Chapter 20 is like one collective conversation with Jesus, his disciples, and the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees. The collective conversation. Remember that scribes and the Pharisees hate his guts. They cannot stand Jesus. He is upending their power structures every other day. These people have the power and the spiritual authority over the, the audience of the Jewish population. These guys are in charge. And Jesus, with every miracle, every preaching, he is upending their power structures. And so they can't stand it. They can't stand it and they want him to go away. These cultural elite, these religious rulers, they are corrupt and they take advantage of people. And if that sounds familiar, God's children have constantly repeated this pattern. In all governments, and all cultures around the world, power, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it's a temptation for all of us. The more authority and power we get, the, the more we seem to believe it's ours and want to use it. This is a, a theme and Jesus is calling it out 2,000 years ago. 
sin and, and the fall corrupt us, but Jesus, the good shepherd, will not allow this for his people. He will not allow there to be corrupt spiritual overseers that wound and hurt the sheep. He won't allow it, and so Jesus is ruining their plan one day at a time. And in chapter 20, this conversation sort of ramps up where the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they come to challenge Jesus' authority. They're trying to catch him and, and up in that and try to stop all of it that he's doing. And so they come to challenge his authority and Jesus answers their challenge by calling them all wicked, saying that you killed, you will kill. He does a parable and he says, you're gonna kill the, the, the tenant's Son, the owner of the, the vineyard, verse 19, you'll see the owner of the vineyard, you're gonna kill his son. And th they came to challenge him and Jesus blows them up and says, you know what, you're gonna be the one to murder me. And the scribes, verse 19 of 20, and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived he told this parable against them. Laying hands, by the way, is not like laying hands on blessing. If you're from Irving, anybody from Irving? If, where I grew up in Irving, laying hands is something else, okay? Laying hands is very different. And he has royally worked them up, where what he answered their challenge was, was no, no, we want to kill him. They want to lay hands on him. Jesus is in the middle of this unbelievable dialogue where the people that are around want to lay hands. They stoop to the level in chapter 20 of sending spies, they stoop to espionage, to get up in the conversations to try to trap him and help him to fumble his way into something illegal in the law that they're holding up so that they might put him in jail. But you can't trap Jesus. You can't outwit the all wise one. It is impossible to do. And so they try and they try and they try, these scribes and Pharisees, and they fail and they fail and they fail. So this is the dialogue and backdrop where Jesus comes very clear in chapter 20, beware the scribes and the Pharisees. Ooh, beware is like a Halloween word, right? Beware, ooh, the scary ghost, beware. It seems like a wrong word for the context. Beware the scribes and Pharisees. But this profile, this posture, is the most demonic and devil-like posture you can get. Self-exalting, self-righteous, self-gratifying, power-hungry, prideful, he, he brings the right word here because this is the opposite of the character of Christ. And he's engaging his disciples to go, you need to understand what this looks like and how to avoid it. Beware, the scribes and Pharisees, beware, beware, beware. He says they like to have long robes and they love the greetings in the marketplace and they love the high seats. They only fly first class. If they're in, if they're in coach, they pay the extra $39 to get them more leg room. And if they're in that room, they're gonna bump the first, they're gonna try to bump their way up and expect it to be free because they're spiritual leaders. This also sounds pretty common, right? Beware these guys, they devour widows' houses and then they posture by making long prayers and we're gonna dissect that a little bit, but they bend all the way towards gratification. They love themselves. And not like we talked about in, in the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, not in that kind of way where you're trying to care for them. They love themselves in the most ugly and selfish way possible. That's how they love themselves. And, and we can look at this and go, well, the point is not to be like them. That, that's not exactly Jesus' point. It's an oversimplification of the application here. What Jesus is saying Disciples, watch out. 
keep our eyes open for these people who represent God and represent Christianity, yet actually are just trying to love themselves. Watch out, church. The people they love the most is not the Lord Jesus, it's themselves. These guys were entrusted with the truth of who God is. The Old Testament, the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who knew that the best. And these guys took that. They took that and they took advantage of God's people. And the church has had a history of that. And Jesus is saying, we have to be a church and a people that are aware of what this looks like and not tolerate it in the same way that Jesus will not tolerate it. So what does a lover of self look like today? So scribes and Pharisees are pretty obvious back in the day, right? It seems like they had long robes and they walked around in the marketplaces and where people were working in the marketplaces, they'd raise their skirts up and work their way around the robes because they didn't want to get their skirts dirty. But the Pharisees, they'd walk around real slow and wave and say hi. They would see everybody busy working around and they, they would get this whole, look at me, I'm here, I'm fantastic, I'm better than you. That's what they would give off. It, it would be easy to spot them. And in today's culture, um, if you look around for the prosperity gospel, you'll find something like that. Christians who are getting rich and famous with tens of thousands of followers, and they said, you know, be, be, a, be blessed to get a blessing today, and so come on and give your money today on TV, and then I'll go buy a Ferrari or a jet. You'll receive yours tenfold, get everything that, give everything that you can for the Lord. He wants it all. They even take this text and go, hey, even if you're poor, give everything that you have, which is a total, uh, a total, uh, a, I'm trying to think of a better word than I'm thinking. A total terrible way to interpret this text. Those people are easy to spot. It, it, when we know the profile of somebody who cares more about themselves, that they don't serve, they expect to be served. When, they, when we know the profile of a Pharisee, we can know who to listen to, who to trust, who not to trust, who to podcast, who, who to follow, who should you go to church with, who should you let the church leadership be or not be. When we know the profile of a Pharisee, we can be better discerning on how to process the world around us, how to process the political conversation. When we see people using Christianity for different means, when we understand this profile and how much God does not, is not okay with it, now it helps us to be more discerning. But the scribes and Pharisees today don't have to be politically powerful elite to still have the same profile. It could be as simple as, folks, you know if you ask them to help, you're gonna owe them something. If you ask them to help, they're gonna, no, no, you, uh, you owe me. That, that sort of vibe is in the same profile of a Pharisee. Oh, you owe me if I do this for you. Folks who love attention and just wanna keep getting promoted. All they're trying to do is work their way up. They're moving on up. They're trying to keep moving on up. People who have that bent towards them, that they're trying to just keep going forward and, and climb the ladder and step on people, there's a profile of a Pharisee. The church has a lot of this in it right now where youth pastors is like a stepping stone, right? I'll be a youth pastor before I can get an associate pastor job, before I can be associate pastor and get a lead pastor job. And so it's almost like corporate America is playing out in the church where I'm just trying to move on up. When we look at people who constantly want to upgrade, there's a theme of this. It can sneak up on me when I'm, when I'm, built, I'm, I'm living in a profile of the Pharisee whenever I'm at a restaurant and my customer service is pretty poor and I feel like I can justify being a jerk where, where I get short. Or if I'm on the phone with somebody and they're trying to be a customer service rep and I'm asking for some help and, and I get angry that they don't have the answers for my questions on the moment, there's a little flicker of this profile of a Pharisee in me. It's easy for this stuff to raise up in ourselves but it's, it's hard to spot sometimes. 
Uh, it's even harder to spot whenever it's in the form of spiritual manipulation. Those of you who are younger, that are in this sort of young 20s crowd, that are, that we have a handful of folks that are single and dating that are here that are doing that, uh, God told me to break up with you. Where we're using God to justify the thing that makes it work for us. Anytime that happens where we use God to make it work for us, there's a little bit of the profile of the Pharisee. Spiritual pride is especially subtle. Spiritual pride, Jesus says they, and for pretense, make long prayers. Pretense, I didn't know what that word meant because I'm not super brilliant, so I looked it up on the internet. In the World Wide Web, you can find any definition that you want for a word. And so I went there, and I looked up pretense, and a pretense is an attempt to make something true that isn't. The attempt to make something that is not true seem true, that's pretense. And so Pharisees would pray long prayers as an attempt to make it look like they were godly and spiritual, that their heart was for the Lord, that they loved him, when really they didn't. Watch out for these people, church, that love themselves so much that they want you to think, I love God, so here's my big donation. I love God, so here's my presence and service. I love God, and so they're doing extra to show that they love God, when really they love themselves. They're trying to get something out of it. Whenever spiritual pride comes in is whenever you feel people that just seem like they give off that you don't understand this, but I do, so you should trust me. You understand this? I'm gonna use a big word like soteriology, and you should probably understand that. And some of those words are important to know, but golly, Jesus had this aura of humility on him, and for us to understand as a church look out, this is what the profile is, we'll be better at discerning who to follow. When more and more and more is a theme, more money, more sex, more attention, more fun, more validation, more affirmation, when those things are themes, there's the profile that's coming up. When we see greed, where we see greed, we see self-lovers. Those who devour, devour widows' houses, these guys were entrusted with the estates of widows, and they just figure out a way to capitalize on that. They figured a way to sell it for the highest value and I'll take care of it and give, oh, he only sold it for this and then take your money. They devoured widows' houses. This was the spiritual elite. They were just taking advantage of these widows. Opportunistic people have the profile of a, of a Pharisee. We gotta watch out for these things. But there are much more serious consequences, by the way, of this sort of Pharisaical profile. Whenever this posture of self-gratification exists in leadership, uh, the posture is ripe for abuse. Abuse in marriages, the posture is ripe for abuse in the church, and not, not just the Catholic church. The Baptist church, youth ministries, camping ministries, where there are people who have been given this authority that are using God to get, the consequences are super, super severe. And for us to not be discerning as a church, to recognize that in ourselves and in the world around us, we're not actually able to reflect the character and image of Jesus who will not stand for that. We need to be on guard so that the church, our church, never forgets the way of the kingdom is not up, it's down. We need to understand the profile of the Pharisees so that we keep getting lower and lower, more humble and more humble, so that we will serve and not expect to be served. Jesus didn't come in any way but humble. But that's just part A of this, transit, this, this uh, comparison. That's only part A of the big picture of what we're trying to look at this, this comparison analysis. So look at chapter 21, verse one. Jesus looked up 
and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put her two small copper coins in. So we're looking at this contrast, not just of the profile of the Pharisee, we're looking at the profile also of somebody who is poor and humble. And Jesus has given us this contrast, and and picture this, right? So Jesus has his disciples, and this is the bigger conversation where they have positioned this conversation somewhere in a synagogue where they can see the offering box. That he's talking with his 12 going, hey, I want you to notice this. And they said he looked up and he saw somebody rich put money in an offering box. And back in the day, there were these 13 sort of metal colander, cylinder kind of things. And whenever a, a, a wealthy person would come put their money in, they, the word put, if you take the pudding, if you take that out and get it into the Greek space, it means throw. And so what they would do in this Old Testament temple tabernacle space is they would roll up and they would throw their money from a distance so they would hit the colander. And it, am I saying that right, a colander? Cylinder, let's go cylinder because it sounds better. Uh, they would hit that bucket and it would ring around. And everyone would go, oh, how much, that, probably, that sounded like about $46. That was 2,000 drachma because it hit so loud and rang and banged down in the bucket. Everyone would hear that. And so the posture of the rich would, would throw it in there from a distance and it would make a loud noise and they'd put their gifts out. And Jesus goes, look at, look at that. I want you to see this. They're demonstratively giving their money and, and Jesus is watching. And this is not really a direct application, but it's helpful to know that every place of our heart, who we love and how we give, Jesus is intimately connected where he can see that. What our generosity looks like in life, not just with our throwing our money into the offering box, Jesus is intimately connected to that moment, so much so that he brought his disciples so that he could show them the same thing. And then he's near enough to even see two copper coins, that his vantage point is close enough to go, oh, she has two. And maybe he had 20-20 vision times of infinity, so he could be across the room and see two top copper coins. I think he was close enough so he could show them to look. Look at what she's giving. He set this up so that like Saved by the Bell, anybody remember Saved by the Bell where Zach would freeze it and then look over and start talking? We get to do that on this section. We get to let it freeze and go, why did he sit them so close? Two spectrums now of the love of God. How do we love God? We get to look at two people and see. So the rich gift. It's like, look at me. This is the gift that I'm giving. I'm the benevolent benefactor that can offer what I have out of my abundance to the Lord. These gifts, I'm sure he'll be pleased with because I'm the one who has them and I'm giving them away. The word gift insinuates that the, the, the rich person is trying to help other people out, not recognizing that that came from the Lord Jesus himself, that it doesn't belong to him in the first place. It, I, I was talking with some friends, and this, this is a, I'm gonna talk to grandparents and parents here, and this might hurt a little bit, all right? Uh, when we give gifts, so a friend of mine was saying how their, their uh, grandparents, as soon as the kid wants something, the gift shows up a week later. And, and the thing we were took, looking at was this big, giant backyard airplane thing. The kid played on it one time, and then a week later, it, was, it landed literally in a big, huge box to take up a quarter of their backyard. And the parent thinks, oh, yeah, yeah, this is the gift I'm giving because I love my kid so much. But what they really want is the kid's validation back. Oh, I love you, Grandpa. Thanks for that. And in the same way, like a gift that you're trying to receive something when you give it, that's what this guy was doing. Somehow manipulating the system where if I give this to God, God will love me. If I give this to God and do it loud enough, people will think I'm legitimate. There's a heart level reality that is being assessed and Jesus is letting us zoom in and go, this is the heart of the gift behind this guy. 
It probably didn't cost him anything. It says in verse four, he gave out of his abundance. It wasn't a sacrifice, but a show. And for us to see, do we love God or do we love ourselves? Are we lovers of self or lovers of God? Is our gift a gift, whatever that gift is, it's offered as a sacrifice? Does it cost us something? Or is it given because it's just like extra? I have that so I can give it, it doesn't affect my life at all. When we love someone, we sacrifice. When we love someone, we sacrifice. It's, a, it's an offering, not a show. It's a sacrifice, not this uh, attempt to get something back. Jesus was showing his disciples a picture of somebody who loved themselves versus somebody else, the widow, who absolutely loved God. So kind of zoom in. You're there, and you're like in the group of disciples, and you can zoom and see the woman. I don't know if it was right after each other. I don't know if it was before. I don't know if it was in a different bucket but I do know that he said, look over there and see her. And the posture that you have to imagine is widowed and poor. And so the posture is exceedingly humble. If we go back to Matthew chapter five, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so we're looking at this woman who is not just physically poor, because these guys probably devoured her house. Remember, we were just talking about widows, houses got devoured. She might have been one of them. Some commentators say that's probably what it was. And the guy who dropped the money dropped the woman's money that he stole from her. And she's going up to the thing and with humility, sliding those coins in so they're quiet. They wouldn't make any noise anyways. The, the, different commentators say that it, that it was either less than a cent or a dollar and 23 cents. But it was everything that she had. It was not a show, it was a sacrifice. And she let it slide down in the can and they were, were watching her and the Lord said that, that hers was more than anything. If we're gonna assess who we love, do we love God or ourselves, uh, where our treasure is, our heart will be also. If you look at Matthew chapter six, there's a whole section on assessment of, and people just wanna see it as money, but it's a heart issue. Where our treasure is, so our heart will be. What I love, I spend my money on, and I spend money on some dumb things that I love. Right now, I love our house, and I'm spending money left and right trying to fix some things and do some, I don't, even, I don't even ask questions at Home Depot. I go to Home Depot, I've gotta get this thing for this thing to do this on this part of the project. So I go to Home Depot and I buy it. I don't even think twice about it. Doesn't even cross my mind. And I look, I'm going, oh my gosh, how did I spend that much money at Home Depot? I just was trying to get some paint samples. And I'm, now I'm deep and like, oh, I need another tool. If I'm gonna do this right, I don't even think twice about it. Right now, if you looked at my bank account, you see where my heart is? My money is at my house right now. We didn't set up our giving until a little bit after we got here, and I'm still, it's on my list of reassessing how much we're gonna give everywhere and where we're gonna give it. We kind of have in a shift right now where we're in a new place, new town, new ministry, so where do we give? Well, if you look at where my, my heart is, it's where I spend my money. And Jesus is having them look, going, oh my gosh, this is where her heart was, 100% with the Lord. Her treasure was with the Lord, and so was her heart, all of it. This is not a space for, for conviction where we're putting guilt on people for not giving everything they have out of their poverty. This is a place of looking at your heart. And so if you read this, please don't read it and go, I need to give everything no matter if I'm in a bad financial situation. That doesn't mean that. It means, what do you love? Do you love God or do you love you? And what does he want you to do? He wanted her to give everything. Not only does this show in her profile that she loved God, it shows that she had her hope fixed in God. Verse four, 
If you look at it, it says, for she contributed out of their, their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So who she was living on was hope in Christ Jesus. Who she was living on was the God of the Old Testament, really, that she knew that was being taught by some of those scribes and Pharisees. Her whole entire hope, everything that she had, was in the Lord Jesus. It was in the scriptures. It was in what God had said about the future and his love for them and all of the Old Testament prophecies. Her hope was in what God had said. That's where her hope was. It was functionally obvious where her hope was because that's where her money was. Everything that she had to live on was in his hands. And so often the world invites us to put our hope in things that it will slide right through the hands of. So often the world invites us to put your hope in your 401k because if you do that, your green line will run all the way to the new house by the lake that you want, right? Isn't that what that Fidelity insurance commercial does? Put your hope in your kid's athletic ability. Oh my gosh, what a dumb place to put your hope. My kid will make it to the major leagues and then he'll pay for our retirement house. People think like that all around us and you know because they spend all their energy and time and money on special league stuff for their kids where they're never here, they're never home present because they're always gone someplace else chasing down the next thing for their kid to be successful and they're paying for batting lessons at three years old. Who does that? People do that because they're putting their hope in their kids. We can put our hope in our kids in a lot of ways. Our identity and our hope can land in them being successful. We can put hope in having kids. We can put hope in being married we can put hope in being remarried again someday. We can put hope in a thousand places that are never designed to hold our hope. The fingers, it'll slide right through because it's not eternal. It's not anchored in the promises of scripture. It's not forever. It's not bent around the gospel and the truth of what God has accomplished and who he says we are and what our life's supposed to be about. But we put our hope in all kinds of places and this woman Everything she had to live on, everything, was in the silver bucket that rolled down it to, the, to the hands of the Lord. She had her hope functionally put in God. She loved him and there her hope rested. And so in, in your books, well in your books, your, nope, pamphlet, whatever that thing is. I'm struggling with words today, guys, I'm really sorry. In, in that, it has a question for you to answer. What persons, what plans, or what things do I functionally put my hope in? This is an opportunity for you to assess that and then to go, okay, Lord, I would like it to be in you. Help me to give that, that thing, that hope, that deal, put that in, into your hands, Lord. Help me to do that. And every little way or big way, every subtle way or subconscious way that we put our hope in other things besides the Lord Jesus, we do this and, we, and we, take a, we take a withdrawal from the gospel and we put a deposit in our own means of salvation, our own means of solution. Every time, in subtle ways or big ways. And so we gotta recognize that the way that the Pharisee did that was take it all on himself to be whatever they needed to be to make it, to do whatever they thought they could do to get right standing with God and the people. We can let that go. In this light that we've been given of the contrast of Jesus looking at these two people, lover of God versus lover of self, I had to ask the question, what does the posture of my life naturally bend towards? If I, if I look really hard in the mirror, it, it was sad to go, man, I, I lean towards the Pharisee all day long. All day long, I, I lean that way. 
I, I trust in my own abilities. I trust in my own capacities to figure problems out. I, I trust in my own solution creation. I trust in me a lot. And, and if this is you, we can take heart that it doesn't depend on us. If this is you, if like me, you feel that bent, turn to Galatians chapter 2.20. Grab your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 2.20. It's up there too, but if you have this in your Bible and it's not highlighted, circled, big bolded, wrapped around, if you don't have this scripture somewhere deep in your heart, then go get it and put it there because this is our hope. This is how we can know for sure that it doesn't depend on us, that none of our plans are gonna be good enough because he has already fulfilled those plans. We can look at Jesus and go, no, 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 no. I don't have to make this on my own. He has set it up. Look at Galatians 2.20. If we're in Christ Jesus, it says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We don't have to white knuckle our way into the ability to let God have this. He's already given us that power, that capacity. He's already given us himself who has everything that we need to overcome our greed, our self-righteousness. He's perfectly righteous in our place. He's perfectly generous in our place. He fulfills all the law and he has all the love to the Father that we need to love God, to not love ourselves, to love God. He has offered that to us. He's made it possible for us to be wholeheartedly our entire lives that are these two little copper coins. He's made it possible for us to every day return to him and go, here you go. Yesterday wasn't great. Here you go. The last three years wasn't great. Here you go. My life is yours. You've given it to me and I'm gonna give it back. He's given us his grace and he's accomplished that so that we can be reallocated disciples. In the comparison today, he's also shown us that we can't do it that the woman didn't have it figured out. It was only by the grace of God could she pull this off. And so he's inviting us into relationship with himself, a little deeper, a little further. And we go, Jesus, I can't do it. I try, I'm on the left side, and then I try to be on the right side, but I can't. He's inviting us to go, but you can, will you help? And so when we read this text, whatever the Holy Spirit is moving in you today to listen to, respond to, my prayer is that we have engaged the text a little bit and then we take a little bit of a step further in belief that he is who he says he is, that he's accomplished what he said he's accomplished, that the scriptures are true, and that all the love we need for God, we have from him. He's been absolutely generous, and so we can be generous people. We can leave the life of self-reliance because we can rely on him. My hope is that we'll take a little bit of a step in his direction today. And I don't know what that looks like for us, but we're trying to build in this place of response after we read the scriptures so we can just sit with God. And so we're gonna have one more song and whatever it is that you feel like the Holy Spirit's leaning on you, whether it's take some more notes, to sit and be thankful, to engage the prayer card and ask the Lord to help, or to create a further conversation about what I don't understand that we read, whatever it is, let's use this space to hear from the Lord, pray and ask God. So if you wanna sing, go for it. If you wanna sit, go for it. If you wanna stand, go for it. We're gonna use one more song to just sit and respond to God's word. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thanks that we don't have to measure up because you perfectly measured up. Father, thank you for sending your son and thank you that we have everything that we need in him. Thank you for your word that makes us wise. 
It helps us to be a church that sets up boundaries and understands the way the enemy tries to deceive and thanks that you've given us grace whenever that's us who've been deceived. Father, help us to see what you've given us in your son Jesus. Jesus, help us to follow you and obey you and walk with you, to take one step at a time of trust and obedience and faith, believing that you are good, that you hold all things together by the word of your power and that we really have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, all of our past and all of our sin is no longer us, but perfect righteousness you've offered. And so, Jesus, if people don't know that in here, they don't believe that or they're trying to figure out how to walk in that, would you, by your Holy Spirit, be the comfort, be the affirmation, be the encouragement to take a step of obedience, whatever that looks like? Would you help people to trust you and say, I give up? I can't, but you can. We, we are really grateful to get to sit in your presence and confess that we are weak and needy, but you are strong. And so, Lord, as we sit with you for a little bit and respond to what you're saying to us, help us to be children who hear and then walk in faith and do and not just hear and walk away. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.